Today, disciplines such as economics, sociology, historiography, and demography are rigorous disciplines that help us break down and organize information about our complex world in the hopes that we gain a deeper understanding of social phenomena and even improve our material conditions. Though indispensable disciplines now, economic and sociological thought never surpassed a surface-level analysis for most of history until very recently. The story goes that modern economics was founded by figures like Adam Smith, while sociology was pioneered by Karl Marx, Emil Durkheim, and Max Weber. However, this narrative is deeply flawed because it only takes into account Western thinkers. Before all of these thinkers in the West, Ibn Khaldun, a 14th century Andalusian of Arabic descent, pioneered what he called his new science. After a turbulent career in politics, Ibn Khaldun settled down to write a history of the Arab and Berber peoples. But before undertaking this monumental task, he wrote The Mukaddimah, an introductory book where he aimed to explain the laws of history in a manner that no thinker, Western or Eastern, had ever done before. Nowadays, Ibn Khaldun is recognized by scholars as the proto-founder of economics, sociology, demography and historiography. This is no small feat for one man in the 14th century, living through turbulent political times and even the Black Death. Ibn Khaldun was born on May 27, 1332, in Tunis, modern-day Tunisia, the capital of the Hasved Empire in northern Africa. Ibn Khaldun's full name was, and this isn't a joke, Aburto Marheen bin Muhammad bin Muhammad bin Muhammad bin Al-Hassan bin Jabir bin Muhammad bin Ibrahim bin Abruhman bin Ibn Khaldun al-Hadrami. Now I'm butchering that, but for obvious reasons, he was generally known and referred to as Ibn Khaldun, because that's way too long. He was born into an upper-class family that traced their lineage back to one of the companions of the Prophet Muhammad. And thanks to his family's pedigree, Ibn Khaldun was well-educated, receiving a classical Islamic education, studying the Quran and Arabic linguistics. Also being a dedicated student, he memorized the Quran off by heart. But Ibn Khaldun also studied matters outside of religion, such as logic, mathematics, and he had a particular interest in philosophy. He extensively read the philosopher Ibn Rushd, which we had covered before. In northern Africa, where Ibn Khaldun lived as a child, there were many stunning ruins from ancient civilizations like Carthage and Rome. Growing up surrounded by the ruins of the old world, it was apparent that the region had once been much more prosperous and heavily populated than Khaldun's era. As he grew up, it became more and more apparent that the glory days of the Arabic powers were over, and the Berbers and Turks were poised to take their place. Growing up in the shadow of ancient empires while experiencing the death of another, the devout young Muslim might have recalled the words from the Quran, To every nation, a term. When their term comes, they shall not put it back by a single hour, nor put it forward. In simpler terms, all things die, even nations. And this idea would fascinate Ibn Khaldun even later in life. After a relatively happy childhood, at the age of 17, tragedy struck. The bubonic plague, or as was then known, the Black Death, struck Tunis. Much of Ibn Khaldun's family and beloved teachers were struck by the plague and died. Ibn Khaldun's father, who had inspired him to think independently, tragically died alongside his mother. Ibn Khaldun later described the plague, writing, Civilization, both in the east and west, was visited by a destructive plague, which devastated nations and caused populations to vanish. It swallowed up many of the good things of civilization and wiped them out. Now just to give a quick caveat, from this point on we're going to be talking about Ibn Khaldun's political career. However, this is a big caveat. Ibn Khaldun's career was ridiculously complicated because of the ever-changing political scene, so I will just be covering the broad strokes, because otherwise we'll be here all day. 
So you've been warned, this is only a quick sketch of his life. We'll be focusing more on ideas than his career. The already unstable state of North African politics was worsened further by the Black Death. By the age of 20, Ibn Khaldun began his political career under the Tunisian ruler Ibn Tafrikan as a seal bearer. His primary duty was to write official documents in ornate calligraphy. An easy position, but one that didn't really challenge his intellect or drive. At the time, the Muslim world was ruled by a bureaucratic technocracy composed of well-born, well-educated aristocrats throughout the Muslim world who offered their services to kings and sultans alike. Unhappy with his position, Ibn Khaldun left Tunis, moving to the city of Fez in Morocco. The Marinid Sultan, Abu Inan Fares, gave him a position as the writer of royal proclamations. While this was a step up career-wise, he was still not satisfied. Angling for a better position, Ibn Khaldun began to scheme. However, he was quickly found out and was accused of participating in a rebellion and was thrown to prison, only to be released after two years when Abu Inan died and was replaced by the vizier Al-Hassan Ibn Umar. Though freed and reinstated into his former position, Ibn Khaldun began to scheme yet again for a better position, siding with Abu Salem, who promised Ibn Khaldun a ministerial post worthy of his ego. But Abu Salem never followed through on his promise. After exhausting all of his political ties and capital, the frustrated Ibn Khaldun then moved to Granada in southern Spain, which was under Muslim rule at the time. By cashing in on a favour owed to him by Nasrid Muhammad, the Sultan of Granada, Ibn Khaldun was given a crucial diplomatic mission to convince the King of Castile, Pedro the Cruel, to agree to a peace treaty. While in Sevilla negotiating the treaty, Ibn Khaldun witnessed his ancestors' all lands in the formerly Muslim conqueror Sevilla. Eventually, a peace treaty was agreed upon, and in the process, Ibn Khaldun had greatly impressed Pedro the Cruel, who offered him a position in his court, as well as restoring his ancestral homelands, with the only caveat being that he had to abandon Islam and convert to Christianity. A devout Muslim, Ibn Khaldun declined the offer. Upon returning to Granada, Ibn Khaldun became increasingly close with Nasrid Muhammad and tried to mold him into the platonic philosopher king he always dreamed of. But Nasrid's vizier grew suspicious of Khaldun, leading to an eventual departure. Sadly, Nasrid did not become a famed philosopher king, an outcome that deeply saddened Ibn Khaldun, leaving a shame-induced gap in his usually extensive and descriptive autobiography. He travelled back to Tunisia to serve under the Hasid Sultan Abu Abdallah, who he had met while in prison years previous. Abdallah made Ibn Khaldun his prime minister and assigned the difficult and challenging task of collecting taxes from the local Berber tribes. While amongst the tribesmen, Ibn Khaldun grew to appreciate and respect their way of life, their plain simplicity, and their loyalty to their fellows. He grew to understand their way of life much more than any of his Arab contemporaries ever could. When Abdallah died, Ibn Khaldun swapped his allegiances yet again to serve under the Sultan of Timelkin, Abu Abbas. After a few years of service, Abu Abbas was overthrown by a political rival, and Ibn Khaldun found himself yet again in a prison cell. Eventually, he was employed again under the new Sultan until he moved to Fez. By now, Ibn Khaldun had made a name for himself as a skillful administrator, but especially for his knowledge and relationship with the fierce Berber tribes. After completing his duties under the Sultan, Ibn Khaldun decided to free himself of all preoccupations and spend time putting pen to paper on what he had learned after a lifetime of political wrangling. One of the Berber tribes welcomed him and allowed him to stay peacefully in the town of Qalat ibn Salama. While here, Ibn Khaldun aimed to write a history of the Arab and Berber people, but he felt it necessary before diving into his book to explain his methods, something few historians before him had ever even deemed necessary. Today, this introductory book is known as the Muqaddimah and was published in 1377. In the Muqaddimah, Ibn Khaldun explained his theory of cyclical history, 
He believed that societies, cities, states, economies, and all endeavors are caught in a kind of inescapable cycle. From humble beginnings, a group might rise to a powerful position until after a decadent peak, they corrode and decline. The dynamics of history mirror biological life in that all things have lifespans and all things die on a long enough timeline. Ibn Khaldun theorized that great dynasties and empires begin on the peripheries of other great empires. Through their unity, what he called Asabiya, they conquer the internally divided great powers. But as these new rulers establish themselves the centre of their empire, they become lazy and more concerned with lavish lifestyle than ruling properly. A new power will emerge in the frontier and invade the ailing former empire, or it will decline slowly. In his own words, like a wick dying out in a lamp whose oil is gone. An empire can complete this whole cycle in a span of three or four generations. And seemingly, according to Ibn Khaldun, this cycle is inescapable. It can be kind of delayed, but eventually it will be fulfilled by the dynamics internally created by any state. But in the Mukaddima, Ibn Khaldun didn't just focus on this cycle. He also noted many other social phenomena. Most pertinently for classical liberals and libertarians, three big things. The nature of the state, the division of labour, and the optimal rate of taxation. Ibn Khaldun was a devout Muslim, and he believed that philosophical thinkers like Al-Farabi and Ibn Sina, who theorized about the perfect state, were completely wasting their own time. God's law, or Sharia, has already been revealed, which embodies the best life, both in the here and now, and the afterlife. However, Sharia was rarely followed or implemented, so Ibn Khaldun focused on the second best state, one which is based on justice and consideration of the public welfare, although the state would not guarantee one a peaceful afterlife. Though devout, Ibn Khaldun was not blind in his faith. He observed that people of a divinely revealed book and follow the prophets are few in number in comparison with all the people with no divinely revealed book. The latter constitute the majority of the world's inhabitants. Still, they too have possessed dynasties and monuments, not to mention life itself. Following the words of Aristotle, Ibn Khaldun believed man is by nature a political animal and cannot live without some form of social organization. Without some form of law to protect people, Ibn Khaldun believed each person would stretch out his hand for whatever he needs and try to simply take it, since injustice and aggressiveness are in the animal nature. He then thought the aggrieved will try to prevent this theft. However, they will be motivated by wrathfulness and spite, and a strong human reaction when one's property is menaced. This would then trigger hostilities that would cause immense bloodshed. Ibn Khaldun writes, Human beings need someone to act as a restraining influence and mediator in every social organization in order to keep members from fighting with each other. This mediator is the state. For Ibn Khaldun, the state establishes law and order so economic activity can take place. He writes that, A tax on people's property removes the incentive to acquire and gain property. When a tax on property are too extensive in general, affecting all the means of making a livelihood, business and activity too becomes general. Hundreds of years before Thomas Hobbes, Ibn Khaldun had already described what Hobbes referred to as the war of all against all. And in the same manner, Ibn Khaldun also expressed sentiments of John Locke that he would later share about the impracticalities of every man being judged during an executioner. Also predated Locke in emphasizing the state's crucial role in protecting private property. Now today, Hobbes and Locke are thought of as crucial thinkers who changed how Western philosophers viewed the state, yet Ibn Khaldun predated them by 300 years. Another topic where Ibn Khaldun predates a Western thinker is Adam Smith. In his famous book, The Wealth of Nations, Adam Smith described how the division of labour in pin factories exponentially increased outputs. Today, Smith is often referred to as the father of economics. But hundreds of years before Smith was ever born, Ibn Khaldun noted that 
The power of the individual human being is not sufficient for him to obtain the food he needs and does not provide him with as much food as he requires to live. He explained that even something as simple as bread can only be obtained by grinding, kneading, and baking. Even simply planting and harvesting the wheat for bread requires tools made by blacksmiths. Cooking the bread might require utensils made by potters. Ibn Khaldun summarizes what would later be known as the division of labor perfectly when he writes, Through cooperation, the needs of a number of persons, many times greater than their own number, can be satisfied. Yet again, Adam Smith, the father of economics, was predated by Ibn Khaldun. Another aspect of economic thought where Ibn Khaldun was well, well ahead of the curve was taxation. So the state exists to protect property, and to do this, some form of taxation must exist to fund the state's activities. But the big question is, how much should the state tax its citizens? Ibn Khaldun believed that the only taxes imposed in the early stages of an empire were those permitted by religious law, the charity tax, poll tax, and land tax. He noted that in the initial stages of his pretty pessimistic cycle, the austere lifestyle of the peripheries inoculated a respect for other people's property and a disdain for appropriating it without proper need. In these circumstances, he also noted that business thrived. However, as powers in the periphery came to form their own empires and have centralized bureaucracies, things began to change. First off, population increases. Ibn Khaldun observed that a large civilization yields large profits because of the large amount of available labor. This economic growth in turn leads to an ever-expanding market for luxury goods. Rulers who used to be austere get a taste for luxuries and start to fund their lifestyles using others' property through taxation. Another factor at play for an increase in spending is maintaining an army. Previously on the peripheries and in the desert, through social unity and loyalty, people fought for their leaders voluntarily. But by the zenith of a dynasty, soldiers expected wages to fight for an ever-increasingly alienated leader. Thankfully, a large urbanized population causes tax revenue to increase dramatically, at least initially. However, rulers tend to push their luck, and with a taste of the high life, they start to raise taxes beyond the limits of equity. This results in decreased economic activity, because in Ibn Khaldun's words, when the taxes are too heavy and the profits anticipated fail to materialize, the incentive for cultural activity is gone. Taxation and tariffs create disincentives for productive work, and as a result, the economy inevitably contracts and declines, contributing to the aforementioned cycle when great empires perish. He explains that it should be known at the beginning of a dynasty, taxation yields a large revenue from small assessments. At the end of a dynasty, taxation yields a small revenue from large assessments. In simpler terms, higher taxes dissuade people from wasting their time, money and effort to make a profit that will be mostly taken away from them. Now fast forward all the way to 1978, the supply-side economist Arthur Laffer theorized lower taxation rates could yield higher revenue using the same logic Ibn Khaldun had talked about. In fact, Arthur Laffer explicitly stated that he was not responsible for the inventing the idea, as thinkers like John Maynard Keynes, Adam Smith, and of course, the earliest of them all, Ibn Khaldun, had already outlined the basic gist of his theory. Hundreds and hundreds of years before modern economics, Ibn Khaldun already saw the relationship between taxation, economic growth, and incentives. So after three years of work in isolation to finish the rest of his history of the Arabs and Berbers, Ibn Khaldun needed an expansive library. He returned to Tunis, which was now under the control of Nulir, Abi Abbas, who took in Ibn Khaldun into his service. However, due to Ibn Khaldun's slightly dicey track record of betraying people, Abbas understandably did not fully trust his newest employee. Ibn Khaldun then left Tunis before things got ugly and relocated to Cairo in Egypt. 
the most opulent and populous city of the Islamic world at the time. Ibn Khaldun was so impressed by Egypt, he wrote that he who has not seen it has not seen the power of Islam. While in Cairo, Ibn Khaldun was appointed by the Sultan of Egypt as a professor of jurisprudence at a madrasa, the Islamic version of a university. After two brief periods of falling out with the Sultan over misunderstandings, Ibn Khaldun was appointed as chief judge of the Malachite Rite, one of the four recognized rites of Sunnite Islam. As a judge, his strict attitude was kind of unwelcome amongst the Egyptians, who were much more relaxed. He eventually abandoned his work as a judge to teach his professor, spending his time lecturing, reading, and making constant revisions to his Muqaddimah. By the year 1400, the last of the great Mongolian conquerors, Tamerlane, invaded Syria. The new Sultan of Egypt responded by gathering a military force to rebuff Tamerlane's invasion. Ibn Khaldun was interrupted from his studies to accompany the military expedition. However, the Sultan of Egypt had no real stomach for battle and quickly returned to Egypt with his army, leaving Ibn Khaldun stranded in Damascus, which was besieged by Tamerlane. Being a skilled diplomat, Ibn Khaldun was lowered by ropes in the city walls to negotiate peace terms with the fierce warlord. Surprisingly, the warlord Tamerlane was greatly impressed by Ibn Khaldun's intellect and allowed a safe conduct for the citizens remaining in Damascus, all before he sacked the city and tragically burnt to rubble its great mosque. Returned to Cairo, Ibn Khaldun spent the next five years writing his autobiography and adding more revisions to his Muqaddimah, all while performing his duties as a professor and a judge. At the age of 73 in 1406, Ibn Khaldun passed away. Throughout his life, he had served under multiple administrations, met powerful warlords and leaders, kings, generals, and tribesmen. He was easily one of the most experienced and knowledgeable statesmen of his era. But what really surprises me most is that he advised political rulers not to seek out the advice of scholars, even though he was a scholar. He believed, and with good reason, that academics are trained to see in universals rather than particulars, and could easily become blinded by their own fantastic theories. After traveling the Muslim world and spending years conversing with the most educated men of the Eastern world, he concluded that the best advice comes from ordinary sound men of average intelligence. Sadly, there is little evidence that Ibn Khaldun had much of an impact in Arabic thought following his death, besides a small cadre of scholars. During the 17th century, Turks under the Ottoman Empire examined his thought, hoping to extend the lifespan of their own empire. His works introduced to Europe by 1697 but were mostly read by specialists. Though, the 19th century Scottish philosopher Robert Flint gave Ibn Khaldun very high praise, stating, As a theorist of history, he had no equal in any age or country until Vico appeared, more than 300 years later. Plato, Aristotle, and Augustine were not his peers, and all others were unworthy of even being mentioned along with him. Nowadays, scholars are amazed that such a forward-thinking man even existed in the 14th century. The Yale professor Franz Rosenthal wrote of the Mukadima. It can be regarded as the earliest attempt made by any historian to discover a pattern in the changes that occur in man's political and social organization. Arnold Tunnaby, economic historian, described the Mukadima as undoubtedly the greatest work of its kind that has ever yet been created by any mind at any time or any place. High praise indeed. But beyond the world of academia, in 1981 when discussing his economic policies, Ronald Reagan of all people cited Ibn Khaldun. Ibn Khaldun was by no means a classical liberal or even a vaguely liberal-minded person. He had an aristocrat's disdain for commerce as, at best, a necessary evil. His lifestyle was austere, and he grew to hate cosmopolitan city life. 
the rough and rugged virtuous lives of nomadic tribes at the beginning of a historical cycle appeal to him more than the luxurious urbane lifestyle. In terms of social attitudes, he was a devout and strict Muslim from the 14th century. He unquestioningly believed women were the property of their husbands and homosexuality should be punished by death in accordance with his religious principles. So Ibn Khaldun isn't a liberal by a long shot. However, there is still a great value to discussing and reading Ibn Khaldun for liberals. He corrects the all-too-common West-is-best attitude. His theories predate numerous prominent Western thinkers hundreds of years before they were even born. There's a certain danger in adopting what is called the Whig view of history. Whig history presents history as a journey from a dark, unenlightened past to a miraculous present. But thinkers like Ibn Khaldun can discover important ideas like the division of labour, but they do not have the same influence as later thinkers like Adam Smith. Though ideas are important and change the world, they must be received in the right environment before being implemented. In many ways, Ibn Khaldun was a man both deeply of his time, but also far ahead of it intellectually. So far ahead that few could see where he was going, so we could fully appreciate his works hundreds of years later. Ibn Khaldun was no liberal, yes, but he pioneered ideas and disciplines that would become key in the liberal case for a free society. Thanks a mil for listening. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. And if you did, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Portraits of Liberty is written and hosted by me, Paul Meany, and produced by Landry Ayers. You can also visit libertarianism.org to find more shows like this. I hope to see you next time.